everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter. I'm here as always with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We are going to do a quick little Giro d'Italia debrief. Talk about two stage races coming up this month that uh, might indicate we have Primoz Roglic and Remco Evenepoel at the Tour de France, as, as we uh, predicted, and then go into Unbound Gravel, which is happening sometime this weekend. Andrew is our resident expert on that. He'll tell us everything we need to know. Andrew, do you want to talk a little bit about your podcast, Choose the Hard Way, before we get into this? Well, yabba-dabba-do, Spencer. I sure would. Uh, so Choose the Hard Way is a podcast about how hard things build stronger humans. You can find Choose the Hard Way everywhere you listen and at choosethehardway.com and at hardwaypod on Twitter or Instagram. Shoot me a message. Let me know who you'd like me to have on the show. This week, we have got Perry Roubaix Femmes winner, Allison Jackson, the life and times going deep on the bison farm facts and a lot of things that you have never heard Allison discuss. Come check it out. Have Ian Boswell coming up in a week or two. And uh, yeah, come check us out. Think you'll dig it. Spencer and I also are going to be doing an Allison Jackson deep dive on world tour racing over here on Beyond the Peloton in about two weeks. Yeah, I was just going to say that. That name sounds familiar. I think she's hey, coming on this podcast. How about I, that? I got hey, to listen to that about the bison facts. I, I need to know more about this. But so the Giro d'Italia finished last Sunday. I'd say one of the worst grand tours i've ever seen through the first 19 stages like absolutely nothing happened as far as there was people were winning stages outside of that really no gc action stage 20 time trial i hate to admit pretty exciting um primus roglic came from behind beat garrett thomas uh really really like an absurdly steep climb like almost 20 percent average for 30 minutes 35 minutes up to the finish, Roglic just kind of slowly ate into Thomas's 26-second advantage. It was like watching butter melt in the sun. Dropped the chain. We can talk a little bit about that. Was riding a gravel group set. Maybe he's going to unbound, secret entry, and was able to just kind of remount, lose 20 seconds, no big deal, win the stage by 40 seconds, win the overall by 14 seconds. And you might be confused or you might be led to believe by those small margins this was an exciting race. It was not an exciting race. And to show you that the top five in the time trial were the top five overall. That means they just could have raced a 30-minute hill climb on the border of Slovenia and just not done the three weeks through Italy. That's not good, Andrew. When you could just have a final TT that decides the race, not great. And that's why it was so boring because everyone knew this TT was so hard. Why do anything? Sit in, wait for the time trial. Any energy you waste is pointless. And then just just race the time trial. And then also Mark Cavendish won the final stage on Sunday. I'm guessing that's what you're going to want to talk about. I, I'm going to admit I was actually pretty excited. I don't really, I've never really been a big Mark Cavendish fan. I could not believe he won this stage. What, what were your final weekend takeaways from the Giro? Spencer, you're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong. I believe I did call that we would have a Cavendish stage win in the Giro and that he will take the record at the tour. You definitely called that he would take the record and I thought it was crazy right. and then now I'm starting to think it's not crazy. Yeah, and then of course I did say that Garrett Thomas would win the Giro d'Italia. He did not and if you've been following us on Twitter, you know that I have agreed to wear a tiny undersized time trial helmet <laughs> for the rest of 2023 and tribute to Primoz Roglic was Spencer's pick. So <clears throat> you can stay tuned. We'll have photos of that on Instagram. But 
Yeah, I found the race to be incredibly boring. I'm, I'm still perplexed by the fact that every other race in professional cycling for two and a half plus years now has completely broken the mold. It's always gone. Races go hard from the gun. It's cycling 2.0. It's the most sensational, exciting bike racing we've ever seen in the history of the sport. And then suddenly you get to the Giro and Drone Hopper was not at this race. They are extinct. However, yes. the spirit of Drone Hopper lived on. And it was just like right back to the TV breakaway. I think the course was overly hard and in essentially neutralized the event until certain key moments. And, you know, the, you said the time trial was spectacular. I would agree with you that it was spectacular in the way uh, like an accident at an air show might be spectacular, but it's not something that you, you want to be deciding who wins a race at the very highest level of the sport. In fact, I know I sent you a text about this. There was like a Zapruder film that had a side-by-side -side comparison of the Roglic and Thomas bike changes. Thomas, I, I didn't understand what was going on there. And again, I think the mighty have fallen. The hills have turned to dust. The great have been smited. I don't think that the sky of yore would have had this bike change. On the plus side, Enios had someone who looked like uh, like a rugby prop or something. They had a guy there who you were like, yeah, this guy can push someone. I thought about you when <laughs> right? I saw that. He yeah. definitely was there to push. Yeah, so they had a they had a ringer to do some pushing, so that's good. They got him up to speed fast, but Thomas cooked it into that exchange. He dropped his time trial bike on the ground, which, I mean, what a flex. However, probably not the fastest way to do it. And then he changed his helmet, which, if you if again if you watch the Zapruder film of this. It looked like he lost about 11 seconds just in that exchange. I actually haven't seen this discussed very much in coverage of the event or on the Twitter. But, I mean, come on. Like, that's almost the margin of loss there. He lost by 14 seconds. 11 of those seconds were putting on a new helmet, uh, which seemed ridiculous. I did notice that Thomas had a gel taped to his top tube. So, if you're wondering if getting... 120 grams of carbon per hour is important. That's something I used to do in Cat 4 Criteriums in like 2002, and people used to think it's insane. I'm a prophet now, Spencer. I'm a <laughs> I was prophet. thinking, are they doing this year to tell you in Hawaii next year, and there's going to be a swim and run portion? Because this looks yeah. like a triathlon yeah, <laughs> transition. I, I, yeah. When you're making people changing clothes and equipment in the middle of the race a determining factor in a professional cycling race, I think you've turned it into a freaking clown show. So hopefully we won't see that next year. The other comment I wanted to make and is we don't have all the best riders at the best races. And I think it's severely holding the sport back. And I think that's part of why, in, a, in addition to COVID, and I'd love to hear your take on the athletes riding in the rain, because I know you had some thoughts about that, Spencer. Um, but yeah, just not an incredibly interesting race. And it's perplexing. Yeah. So to touch on the transition, so they'd switch from time trial bikes. You go through this valley, it goes from basically Ljubljana through Kronstagora, which is like a big Slovenian ski town. And then it takes you into Italy. It's a beautiful valley, great bike path. They started on the bike path, kind of interesting. They start on the bike path. It's flat or rolling. They're on a TT bike. They switch onto a road bike because it's, these climbs are insane. Like 
you, you need I actually thought Garrett Thomas outside of losing I timed it he was in the zone the change zone for 14 seconds when he was changing his bike and for some reason his helmet Roglic was in the zone for six to seven seconds so it was about a let's say a seven se- second differential something that you know we I couldn't believe it I couldn't believe what I was seeing like if you and me were doing this climb yeah we would probably change our helmet because it's more comfortable but like just for a leisurely ride, like just suck it up, man. Like I don't care if your time trial helmet's uncomfortable. Race in it. Because do you know how much seven seconds like monetarily costs in a time trial? They they have Dan Bingham on salary. I'm sure a very, very high salary to like get them seconds during these time trials. And then they just threw them out the window. I couldn't believe it. And then as he's leaving the zone, he's he's fiddling with his uh earpiece because he had taken his helmet off, the earpiece comes out. You know, Rogic went out of that thing like a rocket. And then Thomas is just kind of like fiddling with it. He probably lost 10, 10 to 11 seconds is, is not crazy to think. Almost the margin of victory. I guess you could argue it didn't matter because once he hit the climb, he was losing, you know, four to five seconds a kilometer. Every kilometer on the climb, he needed to lose like two. So, you know, it really was only close because Roglic dropped his chain. Um, if Roglic doesn't lose his chain, it's just an absolute blowout. So I guess it doesn't matter. But yeah, it did make me wonder, like, what the heck's going on at that team? Who who okayed this? This is this is not. And then it, when you think about the the time trial, the vest and the time trial at the tour last year, like it's just an odd situation. I don't understand it. On top of all that, Thomas appeared to be severely dehydrated. Like he was salty by the time he got to that change zone. He was definitely salty on the climb, and then it took him two and a half hours to pee at the end of the race, which would tell you, and I know that because he had doping control. I wasn't just like following him around, seeing how long it would take him to pee. But no, that's not true. Spencer's following Thomas's OnlyFans. <laughs> and he makes more money from that than he does his, his contract with Ineos. It's crazy. But he, you know, that would tell you that he was dehydrated. So he's in the, in the tent warming up, getting dehydrated when it's like the most important thing is not to be dehydrated in, in a time trial. That, that's like key. You, you could be on a road bike and be faster than a dehydrated person on a time trial bike. So the whole thing was a, was a real shit show for Minios. The gearing, I mean, someone in the comments of my newsletter beyond the Peloton said, why didn't they just go to like the local bike shop and get them smaller gears? I don't have a great answer for that. Like he appeared to be on a 53.39. I guess he wanted the 53 to push over. There were some flat, slight descents at the top of the climb. I don't know. I think he could just be in a 50, man. Like he wasn't going that fast anyway. So get that 50, 34, get a 34 on the back, 34, 34. That's a decent gear ratio. He looked to be in like a 39, 32. I guess Shimano says the biggest you can run on these road derailers is 32. I don't know. I've, I've pushed the limits on that. I think, I think you can get a 34 in there, but also maybe just get a gravel cassette, get a gravel cassette in there, just like Yumbo had. I mean, what did you think about that? When you saw Raga trolling up with the, uh, with the 44, 44, were you excited? Were you sad? Were you, were you thinking, oh no, roads coming from my, from my gravel cycling? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was the Holy Spirit of gravel kissing Primos, right? You could almost see the flame above his head from the Holy Spirit. And perhaps a sign of things to come, his transition to gravel must be just around the corner. Um, But yeah, you do wonder, why did Thomas not have more reasonable gearing? Same thing with the helmet, Spencer. A thought that I had, given that 
I feel like time trials almost only exist so that bike companies can sell more gear to, I don't even know who they're selling the gear to. Maybe, uh, people in the UK where time trialing yeah. is, actually, is actually a big thing. It's, it's not <laughs> really it used a, to be triathletes, but now I think triathletes have their own thing. I don't even think they use. Yeah. Time well, they don't. Yeah. Because they don't use UCI legal bikes because they're actually not the fastest bikes and they have a generally a much more forward position. I, I'm not a triathlete myself, but this is what I've been told. But the thing that really struck me was if all of this innovation is being put into equipment, how, and the fact that these athletes time trial in the heat all the time, so their heads are getting hot. And I'm assuming Garrett changed helmets because he didn't want to overheat on the climb at a lower speed with less airflow. Perhaps a helmet company could design a helmet that uh, keeps your head cool and is also aerodynamic. How about that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> Wouldn't that make a lot of sense, especially since most time trials you do are not in like 40 degree weather. But maybe in the, maybe maybe the UK yeah. Midlands time trial scene is driving everything and that's why they do yeah. make you so hot. Yeah, potentially. And then we of course had the moment when Primos drops his chain, which was bizarre because I believe he was on a one by bike at that point. I think he was running Shram with Axis Eagle, the wide range cassette in the back. When you have one by, the whole idea is you have a lower risk of dropping your chain, and he like hit a bump in the road, and the chain it just came flew off. off. It yeah. flew off. It was crazy. And you know, someone said to me, "You know, how many times have you ever dropped your chain on your one by mountain bike? Never, right? I've never yeah. seen it happen." And you're going over gnarly stuff. On I don't. It was weird. I don't, I don't understand what happened there. It was weird. And then he had the spectator jump up and push him. And then of course it later came out that it was one of his ski jumping teammates during the year that he won the world championships. It's a bit, it's a bit suspect if you ask me Spencer. And I mean, once he got that double push, he had his former ski jumping teammate and the mechanic from the team double push. Come on. Well, I was, <laughs> this is a big, big brain. Was that faster <laughs> to stop? Was this all a setup? He dropped this chain on pur purpose. The double push was a net gain versus just having to ride up the climb. Probably not. Actually, that's the worst thing you could imagine, having to stop on a 20% yeah, climb. Yeah, and absolutely. Go oh, my yeah, God. Probably didn't feel very good. I was but, like yelling uh, at the TV, like, he needs to change fucking teams. Yumbo keeps screwing him over. I'm like, let's put a new helmet on for the final time trial. What could go wrong? It's like, come on, guys. Just like get the gear right. But ended up not mattering. Yeah, ended up not mattering. The, uh, you know, you mentioned Cavendish earlier. So if we skip to the finale and Thomas being the lead out man for Cav, which at some level, I, it kind of fit Thomas's, uh, Thomas is kind of the Liam Gallagher of the world tour now, I would say. So he's got this Oasis vibe. And I, it also sounded like in the off season, he had really gnarly negotiations with the team and I just feel like he's kind of doing whatever he wants at this point in time. I don't think the team thought he had a chance in hell of, of winning the Giro before, um, you know, crashes took out teammates who had a better shot at winning and he always believed in himself. And then he pretty much rides Cav to a victory on the final day, which seems sporting also is pretty weird. Spencer to lead out a guy from another team. Like, what do you think? It was kind of weird. So I was, I, I, full disclosure, 
I don't know. I find Garrett Thomas is like, I'm so cool. I don't really care about winning mentality to be, I, I don't love it. It does not really resonate with me. I was also kind of shocked to hear him talk about those negotiations. I mean, it sounded really, really disrespectful. I mean, and I, I mean, part of me loves it. Like just the cutthroat team manager. Like, I don't care how many tours you won. You, you, you're not winning another one. You're out. Like, I think that's actually how you should run a team. And it's a responsible way. And it's respectful to the other riders on the team. I think what they're doing at Israel is super disrespectful because you have amazing riders, as we saw. Like they have this incredible crop of young talent. They can't pay them any money because Chris Room is making all of their money. So part of me likes that. The other part is thinking, well, okay, Ineos, that's that's big of you to say, but what are your other options? Garrett Thomas is your best GC rider. The man just turned 37 during this Euro, and he got third in the tour last year against two of the best riders of all time, or at least one of the best riders of all time. And you know, he damn near wins this year at Italia. I don't think you guys have a better GC riders. It was crazy to hear kind of how contentious those contract negotiations were. I would think that has to play into what happened here. Cause Mark Cavendish used to be teammates. I think since yeah. they were kids with Garrett Thomas and he's thinking, I don't, I don't care about this team. Come on, Mark, you're on a, you're on a crappy team too. Let's win this race together. Thought it was kind of cool. It is weird to think that how much money they make not to race with other teams. So, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. not the world championships. It just it seemed bizarre and not what happens at a professional bike race typically. And then well, Thomas could have won the Giro d'Italia on that stage. You know, he was what, only with time with time bonuses or what? Down, yeah. Like you know, there was a point where his Ineos team was was reeling in Derek G with like four K to go on a climb right like shouldn't garrett thomas be with Derek g because if thomas gets into the break Ineos doesn't pull that's not a sprint because those sprint teams had nothing like they were using they were relying on Ineos to to control the race at the end like right. why why is Ineos controlling this they should be the attackers here let's say thomas gets in that move finishes second gets a six second time bonus there's a seven second gap eight second gap back to the peloton you know, it's it was not inconceivable that he could have won that overall on that stage. Yeah, it, it was it was Thomas's Liam Gallagher walking off stage at Nebworth moment. That's kind of what it struck me as. And yeah, I hope that uh, Cav bought him something nice after this happened. Yeah, I, I, I hope a McLaren I, or something's coming. Yeah, to the house. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I I feel like there's some weird thing going on behind the scenes, British cycling mafia. You know, I've got a lot of conspiracy theories about the sport, Spencer, but what's going on behind closed doors here and what did Thomas see from this? I did like his post-race quote when he was interviewed about it. And I think he said, help a brother out. It's like, what is fat boy slim in the, <laughs> in the, in the Giro now? I was just like, wow, that's, that's rather flip considering you just rode for another team, pal. Yeah. I kind of liked it. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, I also, I also, Astana I, is. I, I yeah, cannot I liked believe it. how weak that team is. Yeah, I did. I also liked it. I, I was like, wow, that's kind of badass slash it's pretty weird. It was pretty weird. I mean, the whole stage was weird. They're, so they were the day before they're in Friuli. It borders Slovenia, beautiful part of the world. You should go there for a cycling trip, both Slovenia and Friuli, great places. And they flew down to Rome. That's not close. You know, that's like, that's almost across the country of Italy. And they flew down the morning of the race. Like, I don't know. I guess it was cool that they finished next to the Coliseum, but none of that seemed to make a ton of sense to me. Like, did you really need to do that? I, I guess they want to like build a better relationship with Rome and 
kind of have a Tour de France procession stage, but I don't know. I don't, I don't think you should, as you said, like the fact that none of the top riders ever race each other, that's a problem. The fact that they have primetime Sunday events where nothing actually is happening in, in Grand Tours, probably not great as, as well. Like maybe make that a real day of racing. Yeah, I think Adam Hansen needs to get on top of things. He runs, I think he's the interface between the riders group and the UCI. Also, I just Googled Adam Hansen to pull up some stats and Google is labeling him as an Australian triathlete. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, man. Wow, this is... This, yeah, this junction. Is, yeah, this is rough. Adam, if you're listening to this, reach out to me. I know some people who can help with your digital reputation. I I don't want you to be labeled this way. Well, I'm um, glad you brought up Adam. Well, so yeah. Adam, very nice man, interesting man. He, yeah, he like runs the Riders Union that is yeah. run by the, it is like the UCI's Rider Union. So he's the liaison between the UCI and the UCI. Like it's a yeah. complete sham organization, but he's trying to do good work. Yeah. Well, there was this superordinate question earlier in the race, just the conditions were horrible. The weather was really bad. COVID was ripping through the Peloton. And I've never heard the Peloton uh, be this vocal and team managers be this vocal about the dangerous conditions and there was shortening of stages is was this Giro truly that different and that much more horrible than everything else and I will say that of all of the grand tours I mean if you're a professional cyclist I have a lot of respect for you and you're basically treated like a zoo animal and Never more so than in this Giro d'Italia, I don't think. It, it did not seem to like an awesome event in which to be a um, professional cyclist. They were a long way from a uh, an industrial park uh, criterium in Dominguez Hills, California. <laughs> the, the luxury item of cycling. Um, yeah, I mean, the weather was bad. I guess I'm trying to think of why this is worse. So we should just say riding in cold rain all the time sucks i'm sure that was miserable for the riders that's kind of what italy is in may like as long as the race is in may i think we've had a few dry years i think i honestly think people have just forgotten about the cold and rain because the last four or five years in europe have been unusually hot and warm um i mean this is what spring racing is like remember Pere roubaix two years ago it was all rainy and muddy and everyone's saying this is awesome this is great rains at the zero and then people are writing pieces cancel the race like what what are you talking about this is what pro cycling is, I will say though, these stages are too long. You said earlier it was an overly hard course. Like I think between the Vuelta and the Tour this year, there's three stages that are 200 kilometers or longer. This Giro had something like eight or nine stages that were 200 kilometers and longer. These stages were way too long. Like the, they shortened stage 13. I thought it was kind of didn't make a ton of sense. They, I think they were just sick of riding in the rain and they skipped out. Of, they just drove out of the rain and then got out of the buses and started riding. Yeah. The day before was way too long. The day before that was way too long. The day before that was way too long. So I understand why they were cracked by then. I do think that they need to shorten some of these stages. It's just absolutely absurd how how long this was. And I think it really hurt the racing. I mean, RCS is not a, not a professional organization. That's the organizer of the Giro. They, you know, they're probably, they have like VR headsets on right now that are like just telling them it's the 1950s. They're not a modern with it organization. They make ASO, the organizer, the tour and the Vuelta look like light years ahead. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was the attrition rate was 
was high, but not historically high. It's just kind of a hard grand tour. Um, everyone that finished, congratulations. That's not easy, but you know, people get sick. Like pe- riders are going to get COVID for the next, you know, 50 years in grand tours. Like, I don't think it's going anywhere. So we can't just like lose our minds and say, cancel the race. My favorite rider crashed and got COVID. Um, it just, I think that's going to be the reality for a while. And we have to recall stage one of the 2020 tour. And if you don't remember it, that was the stage where it poured rain. There was oil all over the road and the riders were just crashing constantly. Not just oil, olive oil. Are you serious? I know that's like, that's the word that it was the, well, that was also because of a drought. It hadn't rained for like four or five months in Nice. And then it rained that day. And then like all the, olive oil from the trees got like pulled down into the road and that's why it was so slippery that's that's one of the theories i heard yeah and then i think the caravan was actually dumping balsamic vinegar on the road and um, <laughs> it was a sponsor it, it was a Modena yeah. <laughs> balsamico sponsor and that was part of the the contract they had yeah the riders then were the lettuce in this salad and they were on the ground but it's happened at the tour as well and the combination of asphalt residual olive oil or diesel and rain is not often awesome well there was soap like on one of the finishing straights of this euro and like some of these finishing straights honestly were the best i've ever seen like you know sometimes they're like you're going through like a street cafe and you have to dodge a table like they were having like 7k long straight roads to sprint finishes it's like literally as safe as you could be but I don't know, there was like suds coming off the road. And I'm thinking, are they scrubbing roads here? Like what, how, how could soap actually get on your road? But maybe that's just the way they do things in Italy. Maybe they're soaping the roads up. That's a theory they have to keep them clean. I'd have to check. Maybe there was a soap sponsor in the caravan. There were suds and things up. <laughs> and it, you know, and just we're talking as a, about as a flex. It. Yeah, just as a flex. We need the name of that sponsor though. So reach out if you've got it at Hardway Pod on Twitter. And I mean, I don't want to minimize like how miserable, like this was miserable. Let's, let's get that clear. And I'm sure for the first, I'm just looking at the route, like the first 10 stages, I doubt the hotels are very nice. It's a pretty, it was all a very rustic part of Italy. When you get into the second half of the race, the hotels were nicer. I hear, I heard that the riders like on stage five, they did, they didn't even have hotels for the second half of the race. The RCS was just like, you'll probably have a place to stay, but don't worry about it. But like, they didn't even have the hotels booked for the race during the race. So I'm sure it was all a bit chaotic and miserable. Um, Three things, or not three things, three people I wanted to shout out for the final stage. Obviously, Roglic, amazing ride. Garrett Thomas, very proud ride. Joalameda gets third in his first year, first Grand Tour. So I'm excited about about that as president of the Joalameda fan club. Sepkus gets sixth, Brandon McNulty seventh, Matthew Riccatello, 11th. Those are all Americans. Great rides by them. I thought Riccatello was unbelievable during this year. He's 21 years old and his first Grand Tour to finish it is hard. To get 11th on the last real stage of racing is unbelievable. His Israel Premier Tech team, I take back every bad thing I've ever said about you. You guys have an amazing, they have three Neo Pros, Derek G, well, I guess four because Riccatello is also a Neo Pro, but Derek G, Marco Frigo, Riccatello, and then the fourth one, Sebastian Berwick, like all were studs at this race. It's their first years as professionals. It was crazy. And then also Andreas Lechnesen, this Norwegian man, I think. Let me check. Yeah, Norwegian. He wins or he gets the pink jersey like stage 
five or maybe stage seven. I'm thinking this guy's going to fall out of the GC. He could barely get up the final climb. Finished eighth at the at the end of the race, like an unbelievable right. ride from him. So those are kind of my three obscure shout outs. Yeah. And seeing the Americans in that final time trial, I believe there were three Americans who were very highly placed, Sepp Kuss, Riccatello, and then I'm forgetting the third one. Perhaps you can refresh McNulty. my memory. Yeah, McNulty, but wow. And McNulty had the stage win as well. I, I mean, professional road racing in the United States is atrophied. Um, what What do you have? Tour of the Gila, Joe Martin stage race. Like that's, I feel like that's about it. There's not much of a development scene. They're all going to Europe at an early age. Road racing is is pretty much dead in America, but wow, some incredible talents just ripping in this race. And I hope that these athletes follow the path of maybe going after one week stage racing, staying in those climbing support roles, getting stage wins. Um, no disrespect to TJ Van Garderen, but I don't want to see these athletes try to move in the direction of becoming, you know, like second tier GC riders. Currently, no danger of that, but that's Oof, that's yeah, that is right the darkest timeline i actually that actually it, I, I don't want to say ruined but it did kind of bomb an entire generation of talented u.s cyclists where the minute you showed i was going to like start the podcast off with matthew riccatello should we say it should we ruin his career is he the yeah. next lance armstrong <laughs> right because the minute that that tag got put on you it was immediately boom grand tour gc contender right and the fact is the sad fact is 99% of the Peloton will never compete to win in a Grand Tour. It's very hard to do. You have to be physically special. You have to be mentally special. It's fine. It's fine to be Sepkus, right? Like the guy makes a ton of money. Yeah. He's awesome. He helps people win Grand Tours. He wins stages when it suits him. He could probably compete for the GC in a one-week stage race if they needed him to. I mean, that's a great career. I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think these guys should, if that's what they want to do, they should feel like absolutely empowered to just settle into that. Yeah. Nothing wrong with making a million plus dollars and riding at your FTP for an hour at the end of a hard stage on a climb. And living in a beautiful, yeah. beautiful Spanish apartment for 1800 euros a month. Yeah. A, a three <laughs> or four bedroom. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're giving those out. Yeah. Spencer question for you. I had not been familiar with Eddie Dunbar prior to this race. What's going on in Ireland? Yeah, we have I'm, like, where are all these hitters coming from? Glad you asked. Um, yeah, I remember it was a few years ago. It was like, oh, Africa is the new frontier for cycling. That's where the new stars are going to come from. We had Chris Froome just ripping it up. It's, it's Ireland. Ireland is where the new stars are. I have no I guess they, have, they must have a racing scene. I think Ben Healy, he's Irish. I think he grew up in the north of England. Okay. Um, Eddie Dunbar, he definitely sounds like he's from Ireland, but he was a scrub on Ineos, on Team Sky Ineos. They treated him like poo-poo. They never really let him do anything. He leaves last year. He's on Jayco now, and now he's seemingly better than a lot of the guys that they had racing over him. So I was super excited to see that. He gets seventh overall in the GC. Um, maybe someone that could could transition to being a stage hunter, right? Because right. if you have Thibaut Pino in fifth, that, that's a good. I mean, Thibaut Pino is a talented rider, maybe riding better than he's ever ridden, which is odd because he's retire, retiring at the end of the year. Simon Arnsman, who was doing teamwork, not really, but kind of finishing above him. Eddie Dunbar seventh. Is he realistically ever going to challenge for a Grand Tour podium? I don't know. Maybe, maybe this is like him just finding his legs, though, and he's going to be even better than this in the future. I was, I was surprised to see it, but I was happy to see it because I just know he never got any opportunities on Ineos. 
Yeah, uh, Team Jayco Alula really punching above their weight. I personally, I didn't really expect them to uh, take a stage win. Hats off to Michael Matthews and then Eddie Dunbar in the top 10 in the overall GC. Because, I mean, with the Galacticos and just, you know, we've talked about this before, but being the sprinter who can do that sprint at the end of a very specific kind of climb at the end of a hard grand tour stage, which is Michael Matthews specialty. Not a lot of room for a rider like that in the Galacticos era, but he did it in this race, maybe because the Galacticos uh, weren't there and um, Primos wasn't able to do it that day. But nonetheless, like great ride, unexpected ride from team Jayco Alula. And then should we pour one out for Derek G, my Lord? I think you have four second places, second in points, second in KOM. I honestly, the only reason I even knew about this guy was his wheel coming off or his tire coming off his wheel at Roubaix. And I, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not being hyperbolic. He might have been one of the strongest riders in this year at Italia. I mean, to get in the breakaway, I think he was in the break seven times. That's ridiculously hard. To get second in the sprint and mountains jersey is unbelievable. I mean, that's like, I, that's like something Tade Pogacar would do. So this yeah. is quite the fine from Israel for Premier Tech. What do you think about Jay Vine's quotes during the race uh, regarding UAE's team strategy? Did you I catch this? I did not. I don't read. If, it, if I see something about UAE's strategy, I just skip it because yeah. usually they don't have one. Yeah, what well, did I, he mean, say? I, I mean, pretty much that. He did not agree with, he said that their plan was unclear and that he didn't care about finishing in the top 10. He just wanted to win stages. Uh, which is like, do you know why you're at this race, pal? Like, <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny you're not on Zwift that. anymore. You're not on Zwift anymore, Jay. Stage 13, really, we thought was going to be an important GC day. He attacks from the gun. And his teammate, Joao Almeida, is competing for the overall win at this point. He's yeah. dropped immediately. You know, his breakaway fizzles because they start on a mountain. And he's out the back. And you're like, hey, man, Joao Almeida needed you. What are you doing? Why, yeah. why did you just do that? So... From then on, I was a little confused about what UAE was doing. Um, I thought it was kind of a strange strategy. I mean, I, th I thought Vine got roughed up a little bit, actually, probably because, as you mentioned, he was an e-racer before this. Yeah. Um, and this was a very, very difficult race from a technical standpoint. Um, it's impressive he finished, but I thought he could have, I thought they could have just done everything differently about this Giro. Maybe the result's about the same. I don't, maybe Almeida could have finished second with the perfect strategy. But uh, they probably weren't going to do any better. That team continues to to confuse me at, at every race Taddy Pogatra is not at. Yeah, and I don't know the details of Jay Vine's contract just from scanning through the story. It sounds like he's on a four-year contract. I don't know when that expires. I think he, he got extended in, during he the zero. Extended. But this is so weird. Yeah, I love him. He's extended yeah. through like 2028, I think now. Yeah, he said, I keep getting told that I can ride for a top 10, but that's not interesting for me personally. In an ideal world, <laughs> my goal would be to lose 45 minutes and then be able to target some stages. Like, wow. And they extended this guy's contract. It's just a very peculiar thing to more or less say, I'm not interested in doing the job that I'm here to do at this race. Um, yeah. Press on why a top 10 didn't appeal to him. There's no interest for me at all because it has no monetary value at all. For what? For your next contract four years from now? But maybe maybe his contract is very stage win bonus dependent. So perhaps his 
personal incentives are at odds with what the um the ds is telling him to do is all i can imagine yeah because what's funny is he's he's almost exactly wrong there like if you can finish top 10 like eddie dunbar if he keeps finishing seventh through eighth ninth tenth in grand tours you can sign big contracts i mean that person is oddly in huge demand yeah. versus stage hunters which it's hard it's really hard to be a consistent stage hunter because once people realize you can win stages from the breakaway they won't work with you so every breakaway you're in doesn't work and you get caught so it's it's a hard, that's a hard career to have um i would just go for gc man i think you're good i think you can win big races please do it jay vine let's get i'm, I'm gonna rip through dauphine which starts on saturday sunday something like that it's it's coming it. up fast it starts on the fourth so that's sunday um, and then Tour de Suisse, everything we said is coming true. Dauph these races, Dauphiné, Suisse, they come so quickly after the zero. I'm so exhausted. I never really do any prep. I don't think listeners should do prep either. Just let the race wash over you. It always starts slow. Final weekend, some some beautiful mountain stages they always have there in the in the south of France. Just just let the race wash wash over you. Andrew, I think Jonas Vindegaard is going to be amazing at this race. I think he continues to do nothing but be amazing, even though you think he's going to crumble under the pressure. I think he's laying the groundwork for a Tour de France victory at this Dauphiné, and I will hear nothing other than that. I don't know why he is going to a bike race when he clearly should be on the volcano until the Tour. Well, yeah, I don't know. Actually, this is a good question, because it's considered you should do the Dauphiné if you're doing the Tour. It's like a dry run. A lot of the stages, actually, this is probably why he's here. A lot of the stages are are bits of tour stages of key tour stages just sliced off so you get to look at a stage that's going to be key at the tour in advance that's usually why you do why you do it and then maybe there's just something to be said for going crazy on top of a volcano in europe and then going to a race is good for you but you know this used to be the norm to do dauphine or suisse before the tour which takes us to tour of switzerland do you know who's going to be at this race I have no Primus idea. Primus Roglic and okay. Remco Evenepoel are oh, both going to be at this ooh. race, which oh means and Remco's confirmed. Primos is like now they're doing the little dance where it's oh I don't know if I'm doing the tour I might be at Tour du Suisse because I've never won it and then I may or may not be racing the Tour de France. I mean this was always going to happen. Primos is going to be at the tour. Remco is going to be at the tour. The fact that they're doing Tour of Switzerland, a key Tour de France warm-up race, all but confirms this. Let the games begin. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm pumped for that, that we get to see them going at it. July should be awesome. And then, so let's get to the main event, the big show, yeah. Unbound Gravel. It happens at some point this weekend. Is it Saturday or Sunday? It's Sunday. It's Sunday. And I know nothing. I follow gravel very little. You're, you're plugged into the scene. Tell us who, who are the big hitters at this event? Who's going to win? And then I have some thoughts on, on what this means for the future of gravel too. Okay. Well, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to revise the statement I just made. It does actually start on Saturday. The rules yeah, are... It always surprises yeah. me with the Saturday. <laughs> I'm always caught off guard. And that's how, yeah. the way they, that's how they want it. Yeah, and of course, anytime Unbound is discussed, it's incumbent upon me to say that I got second place twice in the 100, uh, 2014, 2015. That's a huge, that is a huge, one. that's unironically a huge result. That's very hard it, to do. Um, it was a different time and place. We didn't have Remco or Peter Sagan or 
uh, Ashton Lambie in the race at that moment in time. But I am familiar with this race. I am familiar with the train. And wow. It's in Kansas, by the way. Did we say, yeah, did we say it that? Is in, it is Kansas? in Kansas. Yeah, which I sometimes, if there's any proof that we're perhaps living in a simulation, <laughs> it's that Emporia, Kansas is, an, is truly an epicenter in the world of professional cycling now. Uh, it's a lovely community. The riding there is incredible. The gravel is unparalleled in the world, in my experience. I have not experienced all gravel, but um, riding through some of the last remaining prairie land in the United States is pretty incredible. But you're not here to talk, hear us talk about the scenery. And we it's, should say that yeah. the race exists because Emporia in Kansas in general is such bad riding because, I yeah. mean, the roads, I find the roads to be very, if there was no cars on them, it's fantastic riding. It's yeah. freaky. Like I, it freaks me out to ride there on the road. Cause it's just, there's no cycling culture whatsoever. The cars yeah. just like get off my road. What are you doing out here? Did your car break yeah. down? So they yeah. race on gravel roads because they were kind of forced onto the gravel by the poor car bike relationship. Yeah. A real get off my property type of vibe. So this year, the start list is absolutely stacked. It has now become a career-making event. If you can win this event, you're pretty much set for life. Go look at the list of past winners and what they're doing now and what it's brought into their, what it's manifested for them in the manner of the film, The Secret, as promoted by Oprah. Um, so big changes this year. They're actually starting the elite fields in advance of the race itself. And they have also banned the arrow bars. I was looking back at photos from last year when Ivar Slick won. And it looks like he had a set of profile arrow bars, like the same set that my dad and mom bought me for Christmas in 1990. It, like, that's what it looked like he was writing. Um, but he did put them to use and did win the race last year. This year, he does have the potential to win. The Dutch Mafia is back. Thomas Decker who I was very excited to see race this event. And I've enjoyed watching um, the YouTube channel. I think it's called Live Slow, Ride Fast. It's Lawrence Tendam's gravel brand. And Thomas Decker is a close buddy of his. You might want to go check out some of their some of their videos. Thomas Decker is out with COVID, Spencer. That, of course, makes me wonder if it's going to spread through the Dutch Mafia, who ride they ride like a team and there's been a lot of, it's been very contentious that they're applying actual road tactics in the context of these gravel races. I think a lot of unexpected things are likely to go down in this race. And I think we're going to see a lot of ghost arrow bar usage. That's a prediction that I have. If you're not familiar with the ghost arrow bar position, it's riding on a bike without arrow bars as if you had arrow bars, that position is of course, banned in world tour riding but anything goes in gravel except for arrow bars themselves <laughs> except um, for a lot of stuff yeah it's yeah. considered uh, against the rules or like against the spirit yeah against the spirit i'm really excited to see julian absalon will be racing he of course is a former xco mountain bike world champion gold medalist at the athens olympics in 2004 so it's it's been a minute since julian has been at the very top of professional mountain biking, but I do love seeing this mix of current and past top level riders heading to Emporia. I am disappointed as I would suspect you are Spencer that 
the sure to be 2023 gravel world champion Alejandro Valverde does not appear to be on the start list for this race. I think he just doesn't know about it. I think if he knew about it, he'd be here. There's no, he would, he would miss it. How is he not? How is he not here? It's a huge life disappointment to me. Um, start list is crazy by the way i'm looking through it so just um like nathan haas former world tour rider normally just at a gravel event you'd say wow that's a big name he's like the 40th most notable rider here they've Jan bacalance didn't he win a stage of the tour de france and wear the yellow jersey for a while and he's not even a headliner it's crazy this is like a lot of good cyclists we've got larry warbasi who just finished the zero yeah Perhaps not enough base miles if you take well, a look. At it. Well, let's let's talk about this for a second. Miles useless, right? Useless metric. Don't ride for miles, kids. Ride for time. Ride Larry for just time. did three thirty-hour weeks consecutively with with a lot of intensity in there. So, yeah, but Keegan Swenson, if you follow his training at all, I think that he's probably riding thirty-five hours a week, and he's exclusively fueling himself with gas station hot dogs. If you uh, <laughs> Yeah, I Giro just put out a uh, three-minute promo video with Keegan in advance of Unbound about his training, and it has some great shots of him eating gas station hot dogs. The number one thing you want to do in the middle of a, you know, a ten-plus hour day. Um, I'm sure so, he's doing a lot of real nutrition as well. But Spencer, we talked about this before the show. The one of the really strange things about this absolutely stacked field. It's going to be a really exciting race. Almost impossible to find information about the race. And if you want to know what's going on, you just have to very closely follow the personal social media of these athletes, uh, which they're broadcasting from their sprinter vans and, and their, uh, Airbnbs out there in Emporia. I actually think, yes, it's crazy. You can't find anything. It's, I assume it's not televised, right? It's crazy. We actually maybe bad content. We're talking about well, a race that no one yeah. can watch. Yeah, Flow Sports tried to stream this last year. It was a catastrophe, and then they stopped trying to do it. You'd it's think possible, though, I think. You could get some like AI interface that, so I don't have to follow 100 gravel cyclists. Right. That it's just like synthesizing everyone's Instagram and then just giving me some sort of chronological feed of like what has happened up to this point in the season Yeah, and then what has happened at the race. I mean, with all this chat GPT talk, I think we could get something like that going. Um, just for the record, Keegan Swenson, so four weeks ago, that a 36-hour week, two weeks ago, 24, one week ago, 17. So Tapering. Tapering, tapering. Um, but I wanted to ask you about this. So I went through the last results. Do, I think potentially we don't even know. Like People have no idea how to train for this thing because the people that have won it the last three years are not high-volume riders. You know, Ivar Slick was basically like, I want to say he was like a second or third or fourth tier road racer from Europe. He wins it last year. Year before is Ian Boswell, who was working full time, wins it. Year before that was Colin Strickland, who claims to be have been riding 10 hours a week when he won it. I don't know if I totally believe that, but you know, like if you're training for a marathon, you don't go run a marathon every day leading up right. to the marathon. Do you think some of these guys are overtraining for this yeah, race? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I think some of these riders are overcooked, and I think in particular the tier of riders that are below the world tour level, which of course is almost everyone, and we do have a lot of former world tour pros in here. You mentioned a few of them, but we've got Brent Bookwalter, 
Lachlan Morton. Um, I mean, yeah, the, the list goes on and on as I scan through here. Um, but yeah, everybody else is trying to figure out how can I get up to a level where I can compete with a world tour level talent pool coming from a gravel or XCO mountain bike background or marathon mountain bike background. And yeah, there's, there's so many X factors in the race. Of course, the gravel itself, which famously in the Flint Hills, it's called the Flint Hills. It's Flint. It'll cut your tires. Um, so there's just a, a lot of extraneous factors that can inform what happens in the race, in particular flats and crashes. I think we're going to see way more crashes than ever before this year because you have so many people that are relatively new to this discipline. And as is the case in road cycling, you're going to go faster if you're in a group and drafting. At the same time, you just can't follow people that closely because there are so many obstructions in the road. When Dylan Johnson was on choose the hard way. You can go check that episode out in the archives. He was just on a couple of weeks ago, but yeah, I mean, he said, you know, you have to be really careful and you typically, you want to save as many Watts as possible, be out of the wind. And you have no idea what the person in front of you is riding into. So I think there are likely to be a lot of crashes. This happened actually at, um, gravel locos, which was the last big tune-up event heading into unbound where Payson McElvin, he actually, he looked over his shoulder and um, had his front tire wiped out or he took out someone's front tire, crashed out of the race while he was in a three-man break. I think we're going to see a lot of that type of thing going down this year. Well, what you're describing sounds a lot like road racing to me. Like yeah. high, high speed tucked, saving energy. Yeah, okay. A lot of these yeah, races... <laughs> <laughs> hey Andrew, you're in. talking about road racing. Yeah, okay, I guess you're right, Spencer. Sure. And a lot of these like, stuff in the road. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> well, you don't know where you're going. The rider in front of you could move. Um, but when, <laughs> like, I'm old enough. I remember when Unbound would be won by like Dan Hughes. I, this is crazy. I remember there was like 14 people in a parking lot in Emporia, and like Dan Hughes did it. Whoa! In 16 hours. And you know, Hughes was coming in minutes, minutes, minutes before the next person. No one would be in a group. It was a solo pursuit, kind of like the early triathlons. And then now, as we see in triathlons, it's more of a pack racing. Um, they're all just coming down to sprints. I think Slick won it last year in a sprint. I think maybe Boswell won it in a sprint the year before that. Like we just saw at Gravel Locos last weekend where Adam Roberidge won. It, you know, it sounds a lot like a road race. He did a late attack. Two of his breakaway companions yeah. crashed. He held off a chasing pack that contested in a sprint. Are you a little concerned this is all just turning into road racing and like road racing, Europeans are just going to dominate? Yeah, clearly we have gone through the early 90s Norba transition. So we've gone from the moment where Americans invent a sporting discipline. They, they briefly dominate the discipline. Then Europeans perfect it and come kick our asses. So that's... <laughs> That's uh, that's that's what's happening right now, I would say. And it's kind of the natural teleology of the sport. Europe has a much more tuned development system for cyclists and their greater supports in place. And that's just seems to be the natural progression over time. I mean, I think, yes, I agree with you. And I think as far as like winners, like if you really want to, you know, my hunch is that like, 
Ivar Slick. It seems like a random person to us. This guy, you look at him on the bike, the guy's an amazing athlete. Just like you would see him in the US and you think this guy must be a professional soccer player you know, or some other sport that you know, would be more popular here. I think, yeah, you get a lot of Europeans that are just like good athletes. I remember this guy, Aldo Ilisek. He was a Slovenian crit racer. Oh, yeah. He just I come remember to the him. U.S. Yeah. and freaking destroy us. And this guy looked like he could play like professional U.S. football. The guy was a freaking tank. And like that's just the type of rider you don't get on, on bikes in the U.S. Yeah. And, you know, I think a lot of these world tour, you know, maybe Larry could do well. I think Larry's the war bus is going to have a hard time motivating himself thinking I just did three weeks of the Giro d'Italia. Now I'm in the middle of nowhere. And I was thinking, how, what was that route? Did he fly from Rome back to Nice to his house? Nice to Paris, Paris to Chicago, Chicago to Kansas City, then drive to Emporia? That sounds terrible right after finishing the Giro. I think he's going to think this is pretty hard. I'm just going to go easy because I'm sick of riding hard right now. Maybe he'll do well and prove me wrong. But I think the people that really do well at these races, they're hungry. I hesitate to use the word washed up. Let's just say they're, they've left the sport of full-time road racing. They didn't reach the absolute pinnacle of the world tour. They're like second or third tier road racers like Slick, like Adam Roberidge. And they're very good riders. Like, like talent level maybe would have them at the world tour like the, the power they're putting out, but they're like hungry and really care about the race. I think that's the type of person who, who's going to do really well on Saturday. We think, we think yeah, it's Saturday at this race. Yeah, it is Saturday. It's Saturday at 5.50 a.m. is when the men take off central time. And a perfect example that, of that is Alexi Vermeulen, who again, I've had Alexi on Choose the Hard Way if you want to go check out that interview. He's definitely hungry. He has the talent. He's won BWR San Diego before. Which, again, if you just follow professional road racing, you might think like, well, like, what's that and why is that significant? But that is a uh, an event that I would say is of the same magnitude of difficulty, same level of talent shows up. Alexi does come from the, a world tour background, and I think that's a, he's definitely a writer to watch, and uh, he's still on the rise. He's still a, a young racer. Relative, he might have been on Yumbo with. Yeah, he was. Roglic. And yeah, he sounds he, European, not European. I thought the man yeah. was European for like five years. No. Yeah. I think he lives in Boulder. He's, he's an American man. But he is kind of has a European mentality of like very dedicated to, to racing at whatever the level and, and does have the physical talents, obviously, if he was on Yumbo to, to like reach the highest levels of road racing. And I'm just looking at Colorado participation here. A lot of folks from the front range, Scott Tietzel. Scott, legend. Alex, yeah, Alex Howes, Eric Bruner. Wow, Eric Bruner, former U.S. crit national champion, right? Yeah, I think so. I think he was junior, your U23 cyclocross national champion. I don't know. I was, when Bruner started beating me, I, I was like, wow, it's time to hang it up. This kid is crushing me. And then he actually went on to be a, a really good rider. So maybe yeah. I got overly discouraged for no reason. But he, he came in and kind of, started destroying all of us at, uh, at the front range races when he was a young, young man. Yeah. Zach Allison, Ryan Bennett. I'm just going to keep reading the names of people from Colorado. Lachlan Morton. Yeah. Lachlan. And but, then of course, Reed Foster from Edmond, Oklahoma. Shout out Reed. I think a lot of these front range people are, are red herrings, you know, like Lachlan Morton, obviously huge talent. I, I don't think I don't think it means enough to the front range people. They don't get, they don't get what Kansas is all about. I do think, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. I do think there is 
a feeling where it's like, I'm going to go out to Kansas. It's going to be easy. Like I'm from Colorado and, and I, full disclosure, I'm from Kansas. I live in Colorado now. I probably identify more as a Colorado than a Kansan. But yeah, you go out there and it's like, oh my God, this is really hard. It's, it's hot. It's miserable. Like it is, it's like 72 during the day here in Colorado right now. And it's, and I feel like I'm overheating on rides. If I went out to Emporia, I would melt. I would be a popsicle in the sun. And I think it's just the conditions are so, it's like a punch in the face and you're not expecting it. There's a lot more vertical gain than you thought. And the gravel is unlike anything you've ever seen. Like you said, it's like little tiny boulders just spread across the road for hundreds of miles. I, I don't think, I actually don't think you see Coloradans do that well at this event. And I think part of, part of the reason is they're just kind of shocked by how terrible the conditions are. I'm looking at the weather for tomorrow as well. There, there will be thunderstorms tomorrow. And when it rains in Emporia, you get mud. Uh, the last oh, time I did yeah. the race, I had to run for about an hour in ankle deep mud. I felt like I was in a battle scene from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and it's not very fun, Spencer. Uh, so that could be a mitigating factor in this race as well. I hope these riders have been training to get off in the middle of an FTP slash VO2 effort and then run for some period of time. For Nia, it, maybe it never ends. It's like the mud can just go on for yeah. miles. Yeah, it, it can really. I guess that's kind of cool. It kind of, I'd like to see a clean race at Unbound because because I like to see these, like all these super talented riders duking it out. But yeah, now now that I look at the weather, this could just come down to who can get through the mud the quickest. Um, yeah, I'm excited though. I can hear my son yelling from his room to that it's time to wake up. So I probably perfect, should wrap this perfect. up as soon as I can. Yeah, well, Spencer, one thing I want to mention is that we will be at Belgian Waffle Ride. Lawrence, which is in October. We are Dan Hughes. If you're listening, we're working the back channels. We're hoping to get into Sunflower for a live Choose the Hard Way by Beyond the Peloton event. If anybody listening to this is planning on being at that race, and we hope you are, we hope you're traveling from Europe, from Brazil, from the United States to come meet up with us. We'll have more information about this as the summer advances. Spencer and I are tuning our gravel tactics and we're seeking equipment support as well. Yeah, I don't have a girl. Yeah, we've said it now, so we can't back out. I've got my mom working working the streets looking for Dan, trying to get his email address. So we we are making this happen. I I currently have a, a gravel bike rented in Lawrence for the event because I, I do not Excellent. Own Perfect. Well, looking forward to it. You better go be a father now. And All right. uh, I probably should as well. It's a responsible thing for me to do with my kids. All right. Well, have a, have a great day, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. And we will be back in the coming weeks with some, some good content before the tour. 